Please open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. If you're... uh, if you have an email account, you, you get some of these kinds of things in the email every so often. I, uh, some of the good ones I like to copy and keep in a file. And uh, some of the funniest things. Louisiana. A man walked into a Circle K, put a $20 bill on the counter, and asked for change. When the clerk opened the cash drawer, the man pulled a gun and asked for all the cash in the register which the clerk promptly provided. The man took the cash from the clerk and fled, leaving the $20 bill on the counter. The total amount of cash he got from the drawer? $15. (laughs) In parentheses, it says, if someone points a gun at you and gives you money, was a crime committed? (laughs) You're going to take this whether you like it or not. Here. Arkansas. Anybody here from Arkansas? Uh, you won't admit it, will you? <laughs> Seems this guy wanted some beer pretty badly. He decided that he'd just throw a cinder block. <laughs> this, this was so funny. He threw. He decided he'd throw a cinder block through a liquor store window and grab some booze and run. So he lifted the cinder block and heaved it over his head at the window. The cinder block bounced back and hit the would-be thief on the head, knocking him unconscious. <laughs> Seems that the liquor store window was made of plexiglass. This whole event was caught on videotape. <laughs> New York. As a female shopper exited a convenience store, a man grabbed her purse and ran. The clerk called 911 immediately, and the woman was able to give them a detailed description of the snatcher. Within minutes, the police had apprehended the snatcher. They put him in the car and drove him back to the store. The thief was then taken out of the car and told to stand there for a positive ID. (laughs) To which he replied, yes, officer, that's her. That's the lady I stole the purse from. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Michigan, the Ann Arbor News Crime Column reported that a man walked into a Burger King in Ypsilanti, Michigan at 12.50 a.m., flashed a gun, and demanded cash. The clerk turned him down because he said he couldn't open the cash drawer without a food order. When the man ordered onion rings... (laughs) When the man ordered onion rings, the clerk said they weren't available for breakfast. The man, frustrated, walked away. (laughs) Stupid criminals. We hear about those all the time. Those are a whole genre of comedy now. We we hear about those funny stories. In Malachi 3, we're going to read about some stupid criminals. Really, really stupid. Look at Malachi 3, verse 8. We're going to start in verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change... Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, in what way shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. 
Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. This entire book of Malachi is about the relationship between God and his chosen people, Israel. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that God wants us to learn from their example. And so God is not giving us specific instruction, but he is giving us an example of instruction as he talks to his people. And the first thing that we understand as he talks to them about their failings is he gives them a gracious uh, invitation, and he does so by contrasting his behavior with their behavior. Look at verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed. We look at that last week along the line of, of saying that God is consistent in being gracious and merciful. And so if he wasn't, he would consume them in his anger. He says, I am consistent in grace and mercy. This is the Lunsford Expanded Translation. And then in verse 7, he says, but you, from the days of your fathers. Whenever God uses that phrase, the fathers, he's talking about the ancestors, or sometimes we call them even the patriarchs, as in the heads of the tribes. He's talking back to the previous the, the older leadership ancestors of them, from the days of your fathers, and he's not just talking one generation here, he's talking a consistent pattern in the people of Israel, from the days of your fathers, you have gone astray from my ordinances and have not kept them. God says, I have been consistent in loving you and in caring you. You have been consistent in running away from me. He contrasts how he acts with how they act. Just in this book alone, these things have been mentioned already as the evidence of their rebellion. Improper sacrifices. They were bringing the lame and the blind and the poor quality that they were not supposed to bring for sacrifice. They were impatient toward God's worship. They said it's a drudgery to carry on God's worship day by day. There were impure priests. There was unequal marriage between believers and unbelievers. There was divorce that was ungodly. That's just this generation. When he says, look, I have been consistent in loving you, but you have been consistent in rebellion and running away. And yet look at his compassion in the last half of verse 7. He says, return to me and I will return to you. God doesn't say, I am tired of you. You're always running away. You're always rebelling. You're always fussing about something. He doesn't say, I'm tired of you. He says, come back. God could have rightly lowered the boom on these people. He sent them out as it was for 70 years of captivity, and then they came back, and that didn't turn them around. He gave them their freedom after the captivity and the opportunity to rebuild the city and the temple, and that didn't turn them around. And yet... God is gracious. Turn to Luke 15 with me. 
you know this story if you've been around the Bible any length of time, but we need to read it again and, and just plug ourselves into it and, and think about these people in the Old Testament frame that we've just been reading about. Luke fifteen eleven. Then Jesus said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me, or the inheritance that I will get someday. Give it to me now. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed into a far country where he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. The King James says riotous living, carousing around. He wasted his money on partying. Verse 14, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. A Jewish boy feeding the pigs? That's pretty low. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, when he woke up, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. He didn't say, I told you this would happen. He didn't say, yeah, go live in the barn. He had compassion. And he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling calling to you and to me see on the portals he's watching and waiting waiting for you and for me come home come home you who are weary come Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. God calls His children to come home. He's not talking about heaven. He's talking about you, Christian, being right with God. These people in the Old Testament were His children. How heartbreaking is it when one of your children messes up? And all you long for is for them to come home and, and do the right thing. That's how God is. God is not up in heaven going, Boy, I can't wait till you mess up one more time. 
You're out of here. Just the opposite. God desperately wants you to come home if you have been away from Him. And that's what He says to His children in, in the time of Malachi. But look how they respond with cold-heartedness. Look what they said. He says, return to me and I will return to you. And they say, how shall we return? Let me paraphrase it for you. What more can we do? Are you telling me I'm away from you, God? Listen to what three of the commentators said that I read this week. They all, they all picked up on this same thing. One said this, Their consciences were seared, and they did not know they were sinners. Matthew Henry said this, What a peevish answer they returned to this gracious invitation. J. Vernon McGee said, Oh, what smart Alex they were. <laughs> they had been in sin so long and so deep that they genuinely believed they were in right relationship with God and that God was messing up. And they said, What do you want us to do? Graciously, God sets about instructing them so that they will know how to return. So he goes on in verse 8 saying, okay, you want to know? Here it is. Will a man rob God? He, ha he gives this unbelievable indictment. Will a man rob God? Verse 8. Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes, and in offerings. I put in your notes these things so that you would be able to track them. What did Israel owe God? What did he ask from them? We're all familiar with the word tithe, and if, if you're not, it's, we often use it in, in, in the church to talk about regular giving. In the Old Testament, the word tithe meant 10% or a, a tenth. That's literally what it means, and it's the the reason we still use the word tithe, it's an old English word. It was in the King James Bible, and so it's, a, it's become a common word in our, our language. Here are the tithes of Israel. One-tenth of the whole produce of the soil was to be assigned for the maintenance of the Levites. In other words, one-tenth of everything they grew or uh, um, the cattle that they uh, raised, all of that was for, was for the maintenance of the Levites. Levites were the servants of God in and around the tabernacle and the temple and so on. And uh, the Levites were not allowed to own their own land. So God said, you are going to support these folks by your tithe. Number two, the Levites, after they received that tithe from God's people, they gave 10% of what they get, got to the priests who were the ones actually doing the sacrifices and uh, you might say the, the internal part of the temple work. The Levites are more doing the external part of it. And then number three, a second tithe was given and consumed during special feasts. In other words, there were times when God said, you're, you're to come up to the temple now or up to the tabernacle, and we're, gonna, we're all going to get together for a big uh, holiday celebration, and you are to bring 10% to give, and it's going to be part of, this, uh, part of this celebration, and it'll also support the Levites in that sense. Now... As you read the scripture, there's a little fuzziness here because either an additional tithe was given every third year or 
this uh, one of uh, the second tithe was designated during the third year. One of those two um, was for the poor and for the Levites uh, and so on. One of the reasons I put this up here, folks, is can you figure out that God expected them to give more than 10%? Can you see that? Because God says not only had they robbed him of tithes, but they had robbed him of offerings. What were the offerings of Israel? The tithes were different from the offerings. First of all, there was a sin offering. They would bring animal sacrifices for sin. There were trespass offerings, one for a general sin there, and then one for a specific sin. There was whole burnt offerings. That was a dedicatory thing or a celebratory thing. If we'd have been living in the Old Testament, when we got our elevator done, we would have burnt a whole animal as a dedication type of sacrifice to God. Not a sin offering, but a dedication type sacrifice. There were peace offerings, which are in the various categories after this. Thank offerings, in other words, you're praising God and thanking Him for something He's done. You've made a vow to God. In the Old Testament, they would say, God, uh, if you'll do this, I'll do that. And they'd, they'd have a sacrifice to, to commemorate that. And so they had uh, votive offerings. They had free will offerings, which was just a gracious gift to God. And then meal and drink offerings. And th they would take meal as in flour and wine. And it would be added to one of the other offerings to uh, intensify that. And then heave and wave offerings. And a heave is when they would throw it up in the air. And a wave is when they would wave it before the Lord. And, and those sometimes correlated with the other offerings. Now, did they just give 10%? Did they write that check for 10% and they're done? No. Okay. So don't think that about the Old Testament. And don't think that about yourself. Well, I'm going to give 10% and then I'm done. And all of these things they were to be doing, and yet God says they had robbed him. They had not given to him. What does God expect of us in terms of our giving? And by the way, the scripture has a primary reference to giving, not only this one, but the whole Malachi. But I believe there are some other great applications, and I'll try to make those as I go through. But in 1 Corinthians 16, we find some primary um, instruction about giving in the New Testament. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given orders to the churches of Galatia, so must you do. So must you do. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. I'm fully aware that part of the, the intent of 1 Corinthians 16 was an instruction to a particular church who was going to take an offering and be sent to a particular place. And so we, we could say this is a descriptive passage of Scripture, but I believe it's also proscriptive as in God prescribing the normal way that New Testament giving is done. So New Testament giving is to be universal. He says on the first day of week, uh, on the first day of the week, each one of you must do this. It's universal. Secondly, is to be faithful on the first day of the week. What does that mean? I think it means that we should have a consistent evaluation of what God has done. Proportional. He says, let each one of you give as God has blessed. Um, I am fully aware that we have people in our church on a fixed income. And some of you would say it isn't fixed, it's broken. Okay. Does God expect you to give as much as the person who's making the most here? No, he does not. New Testament giving is to be proportional 
But within that proportionality, there ought to be a faithful evaluation. Now, in the days in which the Bible was written, people did not work for two weeks or a month and then get a paycheck. If they worked a day, they got paid for a day. If they had a crop, they worked all year and they got paid in the fall. Or, when the, or you know, that type of thing. And so it was a different kind of society. And so in particular, because of that, I believe God says every week you should sit down and say, how has God blessed me this week? Now, for those of us here, I think there's two times when we ought to be evaluating how God has blessed us. One is when you get a paycheck. Whenever you get paid, you ought to sit down and say, how has God blessed me? And uh, you need to evaluate that. You need to give based on a prayerful evaluation of how God has blessed you. Number two, you ought to consider it every week. Because God said you ought to do it every week. So I, I don't think you have to put something in the offering every single week. But every week when you're getting ready to come to church, one of your thoughts ought to be, God, how have you blessed me this week? Let me just offer you a, a, one little thought that might step on your toes a bit, and that's okay. Um, do you blow five bucks in a week? Maybe I should say, is there anybody here who didn't blow five bucks this week? Is there anybody here who is so scrupulous about their money that they didn't waste even five bucks this week on something that you could have done without? See? And so, even if we just take that minimal thought and we come to church on Sunday and we say, how has God blessed me? And we, we look in the wallet. You know, if I look in my wallet today, there's one buck and I didn't plan that. And I'm, I could look in there and go, well, I only got one buck, you know. Hey, I blew more than one buck this week. Could I afford to give God something even if it wasn't a payday week? Proportional, thoughtful, prayerful, based on how God has blessed. Uh, listen to this story from J. Vernon McGee. When I was a, a pastor in Texas during the Depression... An elder in my church was the only one, only one in church, who was in a business that was really making money. I used to hunt on his ranch, and I also fished in the river, which went right through his property. He, he and I were in his boat one day fishing when he said to me, Preacher, why don't you preach more on the tithe? You just hear J. Vernon McGee saying that. I said, Well, I don't believe in it. In other words, he didn't believe it's mandatory to give 10%. Boom. He did believe, this man believed in the tithe and that, that was the way he gave. Every time he and I would get together, he wanted to know why I didn't speak on the tithe. Finally, I went to 2 Corinthians 8, which we'll get to in a minute, and I said, there are a lot of Christians who ought to be giving more than a tenth. For example, I would say that you are probably making more money than any other individual in the church except the doctors. We had five doctors in the church and they did well financially. But the point was that this man was really making money during the Depression. I told him, I think that you ought to give more than a tenth. I looked him right in the eye. I looked him straight in the eye when I said that, and he winced a little. He never again asked me to preach on the tithe. <laughs> because he was glad to give only his tenth. It eased his conscience to feel that that was all he ought to give. Hey, friends. God says you ought to give as you are blessed. 
Have you been blessed a lot? Maybe you've been blessed with the ability to, to not want a lot or need a lot, or, or maybe you don't have many cares in this life. Maybe God gave you a great inheritance. Whatever it is, if God has blessed you a lot, you ought to be prayerfully considering giving a lot. Listen to this verse from 2 Corinthians 9, 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. We're not going to ask you to make a pledge and then inspect it to see if you're doing it because we want you to give cheerfully to God. If you can't give cheerfully, you don't understand God, but the rest of this message will help you a little bit. Um, God loves a cheerful giver. In the King James Version, it says God loves a... Uh, uh, the word is hilarious. The word is hilarious. And in, in, in the Greek, it's, it's the word we get hilarious from. And when we think of hilarious, we think of really over the top with joy. I've only ever seen that once because I don't see individual people give. But in our church in Tukwila, we, we inherited some money when we had a merger of two churches together. And we were planning, Lord willing, to build a new auditorium because we needed one. We, our auditorium was on the second floor with a full flight of steps going up and wasn't that great of a room, but we wanted to build an auditorium, and it would take all of that money plus some more. I went to a, a missions conference for pastors where I was greatly challenged on what we ought to do with, with money and how we ought to support missions, and, and I, went back to, uh, to, I went back and told my deacons, I said, we ought to give some of that money away. It was kind of quiet. <laughs> and I let it go, and after a while, we got a request from a church that was sort of planted out of some people in our church and they said we're trying to raise a hundred thousand dollars to build our first little building and one of my deacons came to me and said we should give them a hundred thousand dollars and i thought how great is that to have a guy thinking that generously that just blessed my soul so we went to the deacons and we talked about it and we said well let's give them ten thousand dollars i mean can you imagine if we had if we had $200,000 in the bank and we're getting ready to build an elevator and we said, well, let's give away $10,000, would that be a hard decision? We came to the business meeting and we talked all about this couple that used to be in our church and we told them, you know, and, and so they, they're, start, they're part of this church and we want to give them $10,000 and help, help encourage them along. And, and the only comments people made were, boy, they really serve the Lord in our church. We need to help them out. And we voted, and after we voted, there was spontaneous applause. And we went, yeah! And I said, that's hilarious giving. Somehow, when you put your offering in the plate, you ought to be that excited. You ought to be going, all right, God, here it is. That's what God wants. God wants us to be joyful and excited because of what he's going to do. And that's what Malachi is all about. This is what God expects from us. Universal, faithful, proportional, purposeful giving. Purpose in your heart. I will never tell you how much to give. I will never tell you to give 10% or 12% or 8% or 10 bucks. You need to sit down with God. And if you can look God right in the eye and say, God, this is a gracious gift based on your grace to me, then that's the right amount. But you've got to look God in the eye, not me. You might come to me and I'll go, well, that's fine. But you might look God in the eye and he'll go, are you sure? 
And then it needs to be joyful. We already talked about that. So he gives them a gracious invitation, and then he indicts them. He says, you've been robbing me. We looked at what they owed God, what they gave God was substandard giving. Look back there at Malachi 1.8. He says, you have robbed me in tithes and offerings. Um, verse 10, he says, bring the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Part of how we know they weren't giving enough is he says there wasn't food in his house. What's that about? It's not about sacrifices. I believe it's about supporting the Levites and the priests. And if we read uh, elsewhere, um, in fact, uh, let's go here. They, they withheld their giving. Here's where, where we find out about this. Nehemiah wrote during the same time as Malachi. Here's what he said. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given to them for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work, the work of the Lord, had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. These people were withholding what should have been given to support God's ministry. And I would just ask you today, does your giving match this New Testament pattern? And only you can answer that with God. I can't answer it. Are you faithfully giving? Uh, is it proportional to how God has blessed you? Is it purposeful? Is it joyful? Well, back in Malachi, we, we learned that they gave God substandard giving in part because they didn't understand God. They didn't understand God. Look what he says. Will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me? Now, I know this is a very simplistic point, but some of you might not have caught it yet in your Christian life. When you put your money in the offering, you are not giving to this church. When you send your money through our missions fund to support Helen Steele, you're not giving to Helen Steele. And you're not given to the Greek Bible Institute. And you're not given to the uh, Awana missionaries and the Awana program. You are giving to God. You're giving to God. So if you're not giving, you're not giving to God. The, God says to these people, He doesn't say, Why have you robbed the Levites? He says, Why have you robbed me? Doesn't that put things on a little different footing? God goes on after this instruction to give them the real interpretation of their situation. See, they seem to be blaming God and saying, God, we're serving you, and look, our lives are in a shambles. Look what he says in verse 9 of Malachi. You are cursed. That's why these things are happening to you. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me even this whole nation. In Deuteronomy 28, God promised a curse for disobedience. He promised a blessing for obedience. It's very clear. They, and he went at length in Deuteronomy 28. You can read about it later. But look what Ezra, who also wrote during the time of Malachi, look what he says about this same topic. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty... For our and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands 
to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is today. See, Ezra got it right. He said God hasn't been messing, uh, hasn't been unjustly uh, punishing us. We deserve this. Look at 1 Peter 5, 5. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. When we submit ourselves under God's truth, he takes care of it. Is it possible that the difficulty you are enduring is because of your lack of conformity to God's will for your life? Not every piece of difficulty that comes our way is the result of our willfully sinning, but some of it is. And that's where these people's problems came from. No man ever lost by serving God with a whole heart, nor gained by serving him with a half one. Wow. God wants our whole heart. So God goes on to give them an inspiring challenge in verse 10. He says, listen guys, here's the deal. Bring all of the tithes into the storehouse and what will the result be that there may be food in my house and try me now in this. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. God doesn't beat them over the head and say, I'm going to curse you more. He could have done that. But what he says, look, test me. Near as I can tell, this is the only time in the scripture when God personally invites us to give him a test drive. He doesn't do that in regard to salvation. He says, you believe in Jesus or you're going to hell. Boom. Here he says, try me out. Try me out. Uh, one author said this, to step out in faith when God invites us to test his faithfulness is a matter of obedience. To put him to the test without his invitation is a matter of presumption and sin. God invited them, and he invites us to take a test drive in obedience to see if his way is really as good as he claimed. Now, there's some things you need to understand about this challenge. This challenge is based on the fundamental concept of following God, which is this, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. In our, my Sunday school this morning, we talked about the people of Israel getting ready to go into the promised land across the Jordan. God said when the soles of the feet of the priests who are carrying the ark, when their feet go in the river, the water will stop and you will walk over on dry, on dry land. What had to happen first, the dry land or stepping in the water? They had to step in the water. And when it comes to your giving, you've got to give first to see God's faithfulness on the backside. God doesn't say, I'm going to dump a ton of money on you, and then you can give. He says, look, I'm going to make you a promise. If you will step out in faith and give, I will come along the backside and open the windows of heaven, and there will be such a blessing you won't be able to receive it all. 
What an incredible promise. This challenge is based on the fundamental concept of following God. This challenge is based on the unlimited resources of God. Do you know this verse in Ephesians 3.20? God can do exceedingly, abundantly, above what you ask or think. Do you think if you put a generous offering in our offering or some other ministry offering, do you think God could take care of you on the backside? Well, yeah, I do. Well, Ephesians 3.20 says he can do exceedingly, abundantly, above what you think. And in Malachi, he says, put me to the test. Come on. It's like God going, come on, I just want to show you something great. Come on, come on, come on. But he's not going to show you the miracle until you step out in faith. This is going to happen. This challenge is based on the unlimited resources of God. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9. And by the way, and I'm going to give you this for homework at the end, if you really want to study New Testament giving, you study 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, those two chapters. This I say, he who sows sparingly, and this is the clear context of giving, by the way, this is no misrepresentation of the text. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Now, he's not denigrating this. What he's saying is, God's going to open the windows of heaven, but if you only put a little bit out, he's only going to open the window a little bit. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He'll reap, but it'll be sparing. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you. The real question here is, where's Jebediah when I need him? How big is your God? He's big. God is able to make all grace abound toward you that, all, that having all sufficiency in all things, you may have an abundance for every good work. Here's how I like to summarize the principle out of these verses. If you give, God will enable you to continue to give. And that means your whole life has to be supported in order for that to continue on. Verse 9, as it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Look again at verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound toward you. Friend, I hope you can get a hold of something today. I am not preaching this because we need money. God has graciously allowed us to be in the black with a, with a 40% increase in our budget in January. I've told a lot of my friends about that because I, I just want God to get the glory because churches just don't do that. But you know what we did? I think we as a church followed Malachi 3. We looked at the situation and said, we need an elevator. People need to be able to freely get to the building. It's going to cost us, in the end, let's, let's just, you know, it's going to cost us twelve or $1,300 a month. Okay, nobody stepped up with a $200,000 check, so it's going to cost us 1200 bucks a month. Wow, that's a lot of money. Should we keep people out of church, or should we step out in faith? 
And then we said, you know, we need Pastor Larry's ministry here. There, there's getting to be too many people for Pastor Dave, and we need some specialties and the, the things that he's good at. And, and it's going to cost us this many dollars. And, and in January, when we add it all up, it's a 40% increase. And, and, and the deacons, and I think Chuck was the first one to, to look at that budget proposal and say, well, we just have to do this. And so we all came together and said, let's step out on faith. And, and we did what Malachi 3 is, which we, we put our foot out there in the water. And what has God done? He's provided. And we said, you know, Helen Steele is obviously a perfect fit for that ministry in Greece. And we need to support her. And we asked you to make commitments. And, and we looked at our giving. And, and uh, Glenn came and said, I think we can give her $700 a month, you know, based on what's been committed and how our missions giving has been. And, you know, there was a couple other people who knew what the giving had been. And they said, you know, I think that might be too much. But I, I know Glenn's a smart guy, CPA, you know, and all that. Manages the Blaine Water District. <laughs> More than that, I know how, that he knows how church giving goes, and he says, I think we can do this. And so we committed to 700 bucks a month. You know where our missions giving is for this month? About $2,200, and our budget's only 19 now. We just stepped our feet in the water, and God said, boom, open that window a little wider. What would God do in your life? Now, if you're doing this to get rich, you're in the wrong church. Because there are some churches that will tell you about that. This is God's path to wealth for you. That's not what I'm saying, folks. I'm telling you this is God's path to your obedience and His blessing and you living in the excitement of the miraculous life. This, this last week, God gave me something that I've been wanting, but I don't need. And he just said, here. And then we had to buy something to go with it. And he said, here, here's another blessing. And we got it real cheap, you know. I don't deserve that. But God just said, here, I want to bless you a little bit. Folks, I, I, just, can't, I just can't challenge you enough with how exciting this, this opportunity is. Look at Proverbs 3. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the... First fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. The people of God in the Old Testament were supposed to give of the first fruits. You know what the difference between the first fruits and the last fruits are? I tried to make blackberry syrup with the last fruits last year. They aren't very sweet. They look good hanging on the vine. Don't have much flavor. And if I was to try to sell them, I'd probably find somebody from California that would buy them, maybe, but they wouldn't buy them the second time. God says, look, when you're sitting down to make that purposeful decision about giving, it should be the first fruit. When you get that paycheck, it should be the first check, not the last. Honor him with your possessions. 